Welcome to the future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, principal and founder of LVG & Co., an independent strategy consultancy based in New York City. Through quick and candid conversations with innovative leaders, we aim to foster new thinking and explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Hi, and welcome to the future of XYZ. I have with me today the honor of Pauline Brown, former chairwoman of Louis Vuitton Motenessie, LVMH North America, also the author of an amazing book called uh, Aesthetic Intelligence or The Other AI, uh, which was published in 2019, the end of 2019 by HarperCollins. She's also a professor at Columbia Business School here in New York, as well as the host of Sirius X, uh, X, uh, Sirius XFM. What is it called? Sirius FM. Oh, Sirius XM. <laughs> Sirius like FM show Tastemakers. So Pauline, thanks so much for joining us on the future of XYZ. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Of course. So um, our topic, given your expertise in the luxury sector and your amazing book on aesthetic intelligence, seems logical that we pull these together and talk about the future of luxury, which is, of course, the business of aesthetics. So uh, I'm thinking your first question for me might be, what is the business of aesthetics? That is exactly the question. And it has absolutely nothing to do with plastic surgery. Let me just put <laughs> that out of the way. So before, you know, people often ask me, you know, because the title of the book was Aesthetic Intelligence, what is aesthetic intelligence? And in both cases, that and the business of aesthetics, I always say, well, the first, the first uh, uh, question you should be asking is what is aesthetics? Because aesthetics actually technically is not beauty, although it can be beautiful. Um, and it's not about design, although often it's very well-designed experiences or built on well-designed experiences. Aesthetics comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which uh, has to do with perception of the senses. Mm -hmm. So um, a, a, an experience or a pro product or an object that is very aesthetic is one that moves us sensorially. Um, a fine meal can be an aesthetic experience. Great perfume can be an aesthetic experience. Um, and obviously um, a beautiful imagery or painting. In the world of business, uh, which is not about art, although there is a lot of art in many elements of business, uh, an aesthetic experience is one that lifts the, um, I'd say that, that, that lifts the emotion of its consumer. And there are really two ways that, you know, as a business, you can lift emotion or move emotion. And one is you do it through storytelling. Uh, Hollywood is, you know, uh, best in class when it comes to great oh, with those heartstrings. The other way, and I don't, I'm not a, a movie maker, obviously. Um, the other is what I call um, uh, this sort of creating aesthetic, uh, aesthetic value, which is uh, how do you design a product? It could be a, a, an office, it could be um, a service proposition, uh, it could be a brand identity. It could be anything having to do with a, with, with, with a, a business proposition that a customer can feel on some level. And how do you design it with in mind that it'll actually trigger strong and positive emotions? Because that in the end is what people come back to. Con converts. That's what converts. We don't need more stuff. If all you're selling is utility, uh, you may get away with it in the short run, but somebody cheaper will do it. Somebody faster will do it better. You need that emotional connection. You need the emotional connection. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is really through um, investing in the aesthetic attributes of your product or service. 
it makes so much sense. So thank you for explaining that. I'm, I'm so curious because you, you even defined the, the root of the word aesthetics for us, which goes so far back. And of course, if we think about the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians, and frankly, everyone who's come before us, mm -hmm. aesthetics, especially when you think about the senses, were both a survival mechanism, but also the pleasure space. Yes. I mean, it has the entire range of human emotion of fight, flight, and enjoy. I don't know if those go on the spectrum, but whatever, you know, of human experience is through the senses, through aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So if that was the history and we're at the present, if we're thinking about the future of, you know, luxury in the business of aesthetics, what do you foresee and what is that timeline since this is ancient stuff? Yeah. Well, to some extent, I think it's about going back to our ancient selves. So if historically we've always been moving in that one direction toward higher sort of, the, and I, I sort of think of the, the, the epitome of it in the Renaissance period, it's a very elevated sensorial uh, stimulation. And then we enter uh, in more modern history, the industrial age. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was a reversion away from our human selves that the industrial age was built on it was built on uh, creating, uh, at least in the business context, companies that were, were had scale, uh, were cheap, undifferentiated commodities, mm -hmm. and commodities that could be that could could whether it was feeding a population or providing them with vehicles or whatever went into that industrial complex. Flat screen TVs, <laughs> among other things. <laughs> um, and what happened during that? Call it close to 200 year period where we became more and more industrialized as a world. And it was of course led by America is we also become, it became in some ways more and more numb to who we are, you know, at our human core. So even how we ate became less what we enjoy or what actually genuinely tastes good and more what was prescribed in a, you know, RDA journal <laughs> or what was well preserved and therefore easy to package and easy to store and easy for a busy working mom to cook. And we sort of moved away from, you know, a lot of, of that, which is just so innate in us. And I, I always joke and I say, and I'm only really half joking, you know, you don't have to teach a child to enjoy ice cream. There are certain <laughs> things that at a very young age, we show pleasure. A young child shows great pleasure in a soft blanket, right? That becomes their blankie. Um, and maybe it's J&J &J baby powder. There are certain things that are part of the human experience that, that are not cultivated. They really just feel good to us. Yeah. And, and being aesthetic, aesthetically intelligent later in life, the first step is getting back into your, your childish self and really understanding the world as you did once without the, the numbing effect of being a grown-up. <laughs> I, I love that actually. I mean, it's being human ultimately. It's in, and, and that childlike wonder and slowing down enough, I guess, also to take in whatever those senses are delivering. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and unblocking, unblocking those senses. Now, keep in mind a lot of the, the, the purpose of that num numbing of sensation is survival. Yeah. Um, you know, if you live next to a construction site, the worst thing you can do is internalize that jackhammer every day. You've got to block it. Um, and there's all sorts of other offensive sensorial things that happen in any given day that we have to learn to block. A woman wearing high heel shoes, even if it's causing bunions, you know, she, she feels that that's, that's her dress code. She's got to do it. So I'm not saying that, you know, we should completely revert to Neanderthal-like <laughs> decisions, but I do think what, what we forget is that often when we block those feelings, we actually are still feeling them and we're internalizing them. We're just not... Um, we're just not consciously processing and we're therefore 
often not averting the unpleasant aspects when we actually could, if we were more aware. I, I, it's super interesting actually to imagine that. And I guess that leads to some of the, the recommendations that are in your book, which is about how business leaders can harness and in luxury specifically can harness this power, I guess, right, of, of the senses in order to develop products, develop services, develop brands, but most importantly really is to drive long-term value and about the customer. I mean, it's about that emotional connection with the customer, isn't it? So yes, and, and, and I will say that historically, everyone thought that, well, that's really for the domain of the luxury, the luxury good. And that's true. You know, there is absolutely no reason to spend a few thousand dollars on a handbag if it isn't really beautifully crafted with, uh, you know, luxurious materials and a great story behind it and, and imagery and so forth. Goes without saying, because you're not buying it simply as a case for your wallet and phone, right? There's, there's all sorts of other things going on. What the, 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 the epiphany for me, um, which happened, I guess, starting in sort of the 80s, 90s, was I started to see certain industries that were not luxury oriented, were not built on great design, but very uh, cleverly figure out ways to incorporate aesthetics in, ways, in, in, in a sense that actually transformed those companies and sometimes the entire industry. So the most notable example would be what Steve Jobs did with Apple by oh. virtue of bringing great design so that you weren't just picking your device or your, your PC because of its microprocessing power and its, and, its, and its price, but you were actually buying it because of how it made you feel. And, and, then, and, then they, and then he built and expanded upon that with the retail store, which is the entire 360 experience of that, exactly. right? Exactly. And there are many other examples I could point to, but for every example I have, whether it's Starbucks or Dyson and vacuum cleaners. For every example I have, I would say that there's hundreds of examples in very established sectors that haven't even begun on that journey. And so I wrote the book with in mind that, that this is not just for the domain of the luxury buyer, yeah. that there's no reason that, that, that any industry can't incorporate better aesthetics than they start with. And, they, and it doesn't take money. It takes, I mean, it helps to have a big budget, but sometimes it hurts to have a big budget. Sometimes Absolutely. you get stuck with a big budget. So I think it's, it's about starting with mindfulness and, and with, um, with sensitivity to your customer and how they feel. Well, it's funny because I'm, you know, I, I'm realizing more and more, you know, I started my career in luxury and almost went to work for LV. Um, you know, I think we probably crossed and we talked about that previously, but it's so interesting because the luxury sector, having started my career in that has changed and transformed so much. And when I was in it, you know, I always described it, it as like the bastion really of like, you know, a few hundred people worldwide who are making big decisions and kind of pushing down this aspirational view. I mean, raising up an aspirational view that then trickled down to everyone. I mean, what you put on a runway eight months later, even in the early 2000s, was then worn by everyone because all the fast fashion followed it and it just had this trend effect. And now it is so explosive since basically 07 and beyond. And it's like, I think the luxury world has really had to, what you just said, embrace customer centricity. I hate the word, but CX, however we want to talk about it in such a more meaningful way, because no longer can you just float an aspirational ideal and put out some beautiful images and some sensorial cues and then hope everyone follows. You, you really need to do more than that. So mm -hmm. when we think about the future of luxury, um, and this role of aesthetics in it, what do you kind of, where do you see it going, especially now with, you know, kind of COVID and everything that's happened with lockdown? 
Well, just as many other industries have started to discover the power of aesthetics, uh, I reference Starbucks and I referenced Apple and I could go on. I think um, luxury goods in the last, call it one and a half to two decades, started to adapt a lot of principles of industrial goods. There was a democratization of luxury. They started to open a lot of stores, put a lot more product out there. Um, whatever um, original tenets around exclusivity and rarity uh, or, or sort of went out the window for commercial gain. Yeah. And so I, you know, even though there's discussion in the luxury world, there's a lot of discussion about big data. There's discussion about digitization. You know, there's discussion about um, moving from some of the handmade goods to more automation. Um, and all of that makes economic sense, mm -hmm. um, but it actually doesn't make, um, it really doesn't make uh, desirability sense. Absolutely. And so I think the smart ones, and I, there are probably too many ones out there. I think there'll be rationalization and luxury like there will be in all segments of retail, but the smart ones are gonna double down on that which isn't so easily replicated by the original AI. I call aesthetic intelligence the other AI, but the original AI is actually quite ruinous to yeah. an industry that's built on high touch and deep feeling. And, and and craft. I want to talk about that because I think about like a couple of years ago, Bottega, Bottega Veneta, you know, created this kind of out call. And I know uh, Louis Vuitton has been very impressive on this as well, as has Hermes and a number of other players who are really talking about retraining craftspeople who in Italy and France and Spain and in markets where they've lost or at risk of losing the craft over generations, because that is that feel that hand touch, the, the sensory elements of this are what create the luxury experience. Mm -hmm. And this same truth is, it's the same thing is true in furniture and hospitality and food and wine. I mean, there's a craft that is limited and is personal, mm -hmm. right? It's not commoditized. And so I'm curious, as you know, you say, the smart ones are going to double down, not only on the science of growth, but on the art of, of creation, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, and the way I think of it is um, if I were a fast food, a CEO of a fast food company, um, I would do everything in my, in, in, in my power to move more and more toward robotics. Um, you know, I mean, as sad as, I, as the statement may be, uh, the, 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 the issues with, with, with labor and benefits and uh, you know, workplace shifts and so forth are, are, can be crippling for companies that operate on the low margin. If I were a high-end restaurant operator, and let's just take one example here in New York, someone like a Daniel Belude, mm -hmm. I can tell you in my lifetime, there will be, no matter how advanced AI is, no ro robot will be able to craft a meal in the way that Danielle and his team of protégés can. Absolutely. Um, there's, you know, and, and the reason is, um, you know, and, and I have debates about this with my friends who feel that, well, isn't it just a matter of time before these robots get smarter and smarter? It's not about smart. I mean, great art is about the unexpected. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it does require a power of imagination um, and, and a sort of an evolutionary way of thinking, uh, whereas robots are really learning based on sort of historical pattern making. Um, that, that I, I can't envision it. I can't envision. So I take the same industries. If I just needed to create a nylon sack, <laughs> you know, why, why would I ever hire someone to stitch it in, you know, in any factory in any part of the world? But if I'm really trying to create something that people want to treasure, that they want to keep for a long time, maybe forever, 
uh, that will last for a long time. So it has material requirements that you know are not typically found on an assembly line. Right. You know, I don't think there's any replacing uh, that 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 human skill set. I, I, I appreciate that because I think it's, we've moved to your point in the last 200 years of the industrial revolution, which of course geologists have now named this last geologic period, the Anthropomorcine era, which is the first time in the history of the earth, an era has been indicated by one species, which is man. It, it literally translates to the era of man when we've made all these huge impacts on, on the geology of the, of the environment that we're living in and not only our own lifestyles, of course. Um, and I think as we kind of go forward and we imagine, as you just said properly, it's about the humans and the unexpected and the, the chance ultimately and the emotions and you know all the things that make us uniquely human. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about connection. Um, if we're th talking about like the future of luxury, it has become democratized. I hope it becomes the aesthetic experience of luxury becomes even more democratized, whether that's through robots or on the high end, the non-robots. What do you think the future of luxury, just to stick with that, looks like from, a, from an access perspective? Um, because it is an elevation um, that everyone should have a right to, whether they have money or not. So the first thing I want to say is real, real luxurious experiences um, are not reduced to something as simple as, can I afford to buy it or not? Uh, can I find a way to get to it or not? Um, there's a curation that goes. If you think about the people that you know who have the best taste, uh, they're rarely the people who have unlimited means or the most wealth. They're people who very wisely know how to make trade-offs and they do because there's a mindfulness to what they buy. When they buy things, there's a, um, a sort of valuing of what they own and a placement of it in their spaces or on their bodies. And so I think of luxury as moving away from this sort of acquisitive headset of, you know, I got the bonus, now I can go out and up upgrade my watch, you know, from uh, Tag Heuer to a Rolex. I mean, it, it shouldn't be about the name um, and it shouldn't be about the, uh, the art of the deal or, or the, <laughs> the, the achievement of having acquired it. Uh, real luxury should really be something that you, you buy as a, as a keepsake and you buy it because you love it and you also, and, and this is antithetical to the fashion, uh, the fashion cycle that, that we also live on, but you're quite confident you love it today and you're gonna love it in many years from now. Yeah. That to me is, 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 it's a luxurious way to live to be able to make those decisions yes. and to do them with such finesse. And it's a, a luxurious way to play in the market mm -hmm. as a producer. Absolutely. As we kind of get close to wrapping, I'm curious how to that point of like, it, it is a luxury to be able to live that way, but it is also maybe something that can be learned that isn't, you know, um, that isn't just, an, you know, you have to have access and taste and all this stuff. Like, can you learn how to live luxuriously even without, you know, kind Absolutely. of knowledge, access, money? I mean, I, uh, a few years ago, took a trip to Haiti. Um, and I remember uh, driving through uh, in a car through an area, a market area of Port-au-Prince and I saw women, you know, who have clearly no means, who were weaving the hair of other women quite ornately and, and um, exquisitely. Uh, there was the kind of art that I came across down there was as fine as many things I've seen in much more advanced uh, art community, you know, in, yeah. of, of Europe. There's extraordinary art. I think the love of beauty is not something that is um, exclusive to the wealthy people. 
Uh, that's point number one. And I think the, the, the quest to surround yourself with things that feel and look beautiful is a, is a universal one. We see it if you look at the first remnants or, or remains of jewelry. It goes back to prehistoric times where people worked with beads and so forth. And that by no means was an essential product, but that, that gave them a sense of meaning. The other point, though, that I'll make is, um, is, is you know, people often ask me, can can aesthetic intelligence actually be learned? Or aren't just some people born in this world better off than others? And I say, first of all, yes, people are born off, better off. I will never have the kind of palette that a Daniel Baloud, the chef has. I will never have the, the feel for textiles that a Donna Karen has. Um, but I can be in anything, in any sense that I, uh, that I tend to, I can be a lot better than I am today. And the way I, I describe it is it's a little bit like a muscle. You know, very few people born in this world no matter how hard they work, could be Olympic athletes in any sport, right? There are certain factors of luck, whether your proportion of your, you know, your, the length of your legs and the <laughs> size of your heart and whatever else goes into that physiologically. Obviously there's cultural influences and there's psychological, uh, psychological and some people just, but I can tell you with hundred percent confidence that anyone who, um, who eats right, who works out regularly, who studies uh, the, you know, the, the various effects of different um, processes on their body, will be more fit tomorrow than they were yesterday. Uh, and that's just the law of nature. Yeah. So I look at this as everyone can be better in any way they want to be better, uh, that it takes time, uh, that if even if you're very advantaged, if you neglect it, it will atrophy like a muscle. Um, and also you should allow it to evolve over time. Our tastes do change. There is no such thing as, as one good taste. Tastes change, but I can tell you within any realm of good taste, you can still get better and better within that realm. I love that. Um, it's fantastic. Well, I um, I wanted to give you an opportunity. Is there anything else about kind of the future of luxury and the business of aesthetics that you want to leave listeners with um, as we think about the future? You know, the question I didn't answer, which you asked earlier, was uh, what's the effect of COVID on all of this? And what yeah. some of the changes, you know, this has been a very, very disruptive time in history, in the history of man. Some of the changes we've encountered, uh, they'll take a generation to recover from. Uh, and some I think will bounce back pretty quickly. Um, and, but the one thing I, I feel more confident, I wrote that book, Aesthetic Intelligence, well before I could have even conceived of this pandemic uh, being a factor in my lifetime. And I feel like some of the things I talked about in the book, the power of community, um, the, um, the, the importance of surrounding yourself, of creating spaces that create comfort and stimulus mm. and excitement. Um, That's prescient. To, to nurture ourselves. And I don't even know if it was prescient so much as I think it's become pronounced. I think, you know, I'm, I'm more confident that the, the power of this aesthetic intelligence principle in a post-COVID era will be more obvious to so many because of what we've been through. And I don't think it'll just affect luxury, but I think luxury, if done well, and if, if it applies these principles well, will be a particularly strong beneficiary. Oh, I, I, I hope so as an asset. Um, and I certainly appreciate all of your insights. That was a, a lot for a very short window. And um, I look forward to continuing the conversation offline. Um, but thank you so much, Colleen, for joining us today on Future of XYZ. Um, it was it was great. And I look forward to, uh, to everyone taking advantage of some of the ideas that we have here of just, you know, kind of being more human. 
Thanks for listening to the Future of XYZ. If you like what you've been hearing, please follow Lisa Grelnick on LinkedIn. Visit future-of.xyz or subscribe to the Future of XYZ podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.